Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the continents divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Written at the turn of the 19th century, William Blake's famous line about dark satanic mills has often been linked to the extraordinary changes he and others living at the same time witnessed in the world around them. The Industrial Revolution, which began in England in the early 18th century, heralded a new era in urban labour, with huge new factories erected, remarkable pieces of machinery invented, fuel and transport revolutionised, and urban centres transformed beyond recognition. This era of mills, steam engines, factories and mining brought with it a raft of new medical problems and public health issues. In this episode, we travel to the industrial world. It's a place where life is cheap, work is hard, and even the very water you drink can turn against you. Let's begin with our sick-to-death object. Dean Patton, thank you for joining us again on the podcast. What objects do you have for us today? It's an unusual one today. It's a medical replica of a set of lungs. Now, they're not the particularly healthiest looking lungs in the world, blackened and slightly shriveled. And these are a medical model of lungs which have suffered from years of smoke damage. So perhaps it, it was a smoker, but in this case, it's someone who's worked in a, in a very industrial environment where there's a lot of coal smoke. So inside, obviously, a city or a place where there's a, a lot of sudden grime. And this is something that very much shortened the lives of uh, a lot of people in the Industrial Revolution. So it just gives you a, a visual indi- indicator of what sudden smoke can, can do to someone's lungs. We'll explore the medical challenges presented by treacherous workplaces very soon. First, let's look at the impact of the Industrial Revolution on urban living. Well, what happened with the Industrial Revolution was suddenly you had to have industries that involved very, very large numbers of people. That's Dr Deborah Brunton, medical historian and author of Health and Wellness in the 19th Century. So you go from a workshop with half a dozen people in it to factories with hundreds of people in it. And most of those obviously are in cities. So it brings a lot of people in from the countryside into the towns very, very quickly. And cities grow incredibly rapidly. I mean, they're expanding at an incredible rate. So what happens is that the new residents get sort of packed into the existing houses and new houses are built. But basically, the housing stock can't keep up with the number of new residents. So you get terrific population densities. The other thing that happens, of course, is all the kind of infrastructure that's dealing with waste starts to break down. Because if you imagine you have a town with 200 people in it, and there's a river, you can probably chuck all your rubbish in the river and it will disappear. 
But if you have a town with 2,000 people in it, or 20,000 people in it, or 200,000 people in it, then that really is not going to work anymore. The rivers just get silted up with rubbish. Old systems where the rubbish used to accumulate in the streets and get carted off once a year, well, that's not going to work when you have very large numbers of people either. So although town councils and urban bodies do their best, basically, it's very difficult to keep cities clean when you have such large numbers of people. So cities are getting dirtier and they're getting more crowded. And those are the perfect conditions for disease to move through the population. So you get increasingly through the 19th century outbreaks of what was known as fever, which was probably a mixture of things like typhus, which is spread by body lice. So people sleeping 10 to a room, parasites can spread very rapidly from person to person. Or typhoid, which is spread by contaminated water supplies because the wells become filled up with dirt as well and people are still drinking the water, so that's very easy to spread around. And you also get diseases that spread from person to person. So you get epidemics of flu for the first time. You get childhood diseases spreading through younger parts of the population, smallpox, measles, mumps, diphtheria. So basically you get a lot of infectious disease that just doesn't happen when the population is less densely packed in. These things did occur in the countryside, but they're much worse in the towns. In response to the unprecedented levels of poverty, overcrowding and disease, the public health movement accelerated in the 19th century. So from about 1750 to 1900, Britain's population rose by 300%, from around 6 to 18 million. By the 1880s, 80% of the country's inhabitants were urban dwellers. That's Julie Mathias, medical historian and author of A Social History of Sickness in London. Throughout the 19th century, there were major breakthroughs in medicine, ranging from the arrival of anaesthetic in 1846 to the discovery of germs in the 1860s. But despite these achievements, medicine itself remained pretty stagnant. More problematic for the sick poor was getting access to healthcare. So on one hand, there was more voluntary hospitals being built during the period, but gaining admission was difficult and the cost of calling a doctor to your home would have been sort of out of most people's budgets. Diseases of especially the urban poor were often generated by the conditions that they were exposed to. So for example, although it was not understood at the time to be caused by contaminated water, but when cholera uh, rampaged its way through Britain from the 1830s, It affected poorer households because of bad drainage and water supply. Many health issues occurred out of malnutrition, especially in children like diphtheria, scarlet fever, posed more of a threat to kind of undernourished kiddies. And maternal deficiencies frequently led to congenital deformities such as rickets. Smallpox, even after the vaccination was introduced, remained endemic throughout the whole century. And although the virus had no sort of social preference, it certainly spread a fast pace in overcrowded communities. The overcrowding had serious effects. In terms of the actual living conditions of the sort of urban poor, well, they generally lived in what we refer to as slums. And they were usually positioned quite close to the river. But they had once been respectable homes to the better off. 
But when the wealthy, you know, began to sort of migrate west in London, the buildings became derelict. And over the years, sort of thieves have moved in and removed any sort of saleable interiors, including fireplaces, floorboards, windows, etc. So by the time the poor actually gained entry, they were little more than open carcasses, devoid of drainage, impossible to heat and cooking. You'd have like a cesspit that was generally overflowing or broken or both. Also, the buildings lacked any exterior amenity, such as street lighting or refuse removal. As bad as they were, these premises could actually generate a substantial income. I mean, some people, generally a slightly better off person, would rent a whole house for a small sum and then sublet each room for a higher rate. And in order to sort of maximise the the latter's profit and to to sort of minimise the occupant's cost, families of five or six would be typically sharing one room. So obviously in very close proximity to each other, where of course disease, the spread of disease was much more prevalent. Liverpool has got this oversupply of crumbling Georgian, very tightly packed housing stock, rotting away, slums not only in the making but already maturing. That's Stephen McGann, star of Call the Midwife, science communicator and author of Flesh and Blood, A History of My Family in Seven Maladies. And it was getting a lot post the slave trade years of the 1700s at Liverpool as abolition came in and Liverpool began to look towards more trade transatlantic. The emigrants from Ireland began to come over even before the famous potato famine in the 1840s and began to cram the old Georgian housing of Liverpool in the slum streets. Every two or three houses down, you would have a little passageway going through which looked like it was going to the back of the houses, but actually opened out into this filthy court behind the main street, into which they'd crammed another six or seven single-room dwellings, in which lived possibly 150 souls in single rooms, no sanitation, and two toilets at the end of these filthy courtyards, these courts, one or two single soil toilets, basically open sewers, where the children used to play. You couldn't design a better vector for the spread of infectious disease. In the early 19th century, an epidemic of cholera broke out in the Bengal region of India. The disease had blighted the region for centuries. With the increased movement of world populations as a whole and British military and merchant ships in particular, it didn't take long for it to spread. From India, it infiltrated the rest of South Asia before making its way to the Middle East, Europe, Eastern Africa, North America, East Asia and beyond. Throughout the 19th century, tens of millions of people around the world died as a result of cholera. In Britain, the first epidemic of 1832 hit urban populations hard. But what was it? And how did authorities try to tackle it? John Snow was a very eminent practitioner in Victorian London. He's known for his role in public health, but he was also Queen Victoria's obstetrician. And he delivered a number of princes and princesses. He's best known now for his role in discovering how cholera was transmitted. Cholera was a terrible disease. It spread from India in a pandemic that went right round the world a number of times in the 19th century. And there was a great debate about how cholera spread. Nobody knew about bacteria and viruses. So whether it spread via water supply or whether it spread through the air 
and if it was spread through smells, if bad smells arising from dirt was actually the cause of cholera, or perhaps there were particles in the air, or perhaps some people were just particularly susceptible to cholera. It was, there was a huge debate and there was absolutely no way of resolving it. Snow got involved in that debate and what he does is he starts to map where cholera cases are found, physically on a map of the Soho district of London. And he realises that they focus on one particular water pump in Broad Street. And he convinced the local authorities to take the handle off the pump so people can't use that well anymore. And the number of cholera cases declines. He published his results after the epidemic had, had passed on. And although it's a really sort of seminal paper, at the time, it was just one of many responses to cholera. So although Snow had in fact hit on the actual transmission of cholera, we know now it's a bacteria that lives in water and the disease is spread through the water supply. It wasn't generally accepted. There was sort of a very kind of gradual pickup of the idea. Snow publishes his ideas in the 1850s, but they really don't become generally accepted until the late 1860s. And by then, actually, cholera had disappeared from Britain. So he plays a role in the disappearance of cholera. He's famous for being the man who really put his finger on the exact method of transmission. But in terms of actually stopping epidemics, he helped, but he wasn't really crucial. There's another strand to the medical history of cholera in Britain. During the height of the 1932 epidemic, a series of riots took place in Liverpool and other places. Protesters were angry with the medical establishment and accused them of siphoning away bodies and in some instances actually killing patients to satisfy the demand for anatomical dissection. This was only a few years after the Birkenhair body snatching scandal. With so many challenges, the process of cleaning up the cities took a long time. In 1832, a man named Edwin Cladwick was appointed by the government to help create a new poor law because the older system was inadequate in meeting the demands of the ever-increasing number of paupers. This new legislation introduced the workhouse system as a solution to reduce the local poor rates. So anyone that could not afford to keep themselves or their families would then have to enter into a workhouse to obtain any help, which included medical care as well. So Chadwick began to notice a strong link between poverty and disease, which of course wasn't you know, particularly an, an, a new observation. But what he did is he, he monitored the situation and concluded that the demands on poor relief was often caused by ill health. So in 1837, Chadwick appointed three doctors to investigate the London districts with the highest mortality rate. And their findings came back and they revealed that overcrowding, unsanitary conditions and squalor accounted for the main cause of illness and death amongst the poor. So Chadwick then expanded his research to include other urban centres in Britain, such as Birmingham, and discovered a similar pattern kind of occurring there too, and realised that in order to exercise a national system, it would require creating a centric public health authority that would in turn be directed by local authorities to renew all areas of sort of sanitary provision, including drainage, street cleaning, nuisances and so forth. His efforts were acknowledged in 1848 with passing of the first 
Public Health Act. However, although the act was passed by central government, it relied on local authorities to actually implement it, which really, really varied enormously from place to place. So it wasn't until a few decades later in 1875 that the former act was reinforced and made compulsory. So while sort of public health in Britain was constructed during the 19th century, this sort of transformation from an arbitrary system to a professional civil service was extensive, but certainly not without its difficulties. The general lesson is health problems are holistic, so you had to clean the water up. Well, if you're going to clean the water up, what do you mean by cleaning water? You don't just clean water, you clean the sewage, which means you have to put toilets in. Which means if you're going to put toilets in, you have to give council houses to people. And once you get over council houses, you're starting to give people fresh air and gas in their homes and a toilet in their house. The minute you're doing that, you're leading the world in social health, which is what happened to Liverpool. But the waterborne viruses... The typhoid, the cholera, the scourges of those things, they will never go away unless you handle those base sort of literally nuts, bolts and pipes of public health. And that's what they did. By the end of the 19th century, a vaccine against cholera had been developed by a Russian Jewish bacteriologist, Voldemar Hafkine, and research into the disease continued in earnest throughout the 20th century. It wasn't just the urban squalor that posed risks to health during the Industrial Revolution. It was also the workplaces themselves. Well, I suppose in the first place, there's increased risks of accidents. That's Professor David Turner, cultural historian and author of Disability in the Industrial Revolution. Which are caused by a variety of things. So in factories, we've got reports of people being injured by dangerous machinery. In coal mines, we have accounts of people being injured by roof falls and explosions, which are caused by digging mines deeper to try and win more coal. There's also an increased risk of disease in the Industrial Revolution as well. So if you worked in a coal mine or a cotton factory, these are quite often very dusty environments, and this could increase lung diseases. And also in new industrial towns, there's greater risk of epidemic disease caused by poor sanitation. So diseases like cholera spread as a result of contamination to the water supply. And also people complained about general debility caused by the nature of industrial work. So, for example, standing for long hours like people did in textile factories was believed to prevent young people's bodies from growing properly and the hard work generally associated with industrial labour was also linked to premature ageing. It was said for example that a coal miner was old by the time he reached the age of 40. So all these are dangers to the body brought about by the Industrial Revolution. The nature of disabilities often depended on particular occupations and people said at the time you could you could tell what kind of job someone did by the way they looked or the kind of impairments that they exhibited. Coal miners, for example, were susceptible to things like uh, burns and debilitating lung diseases. Sometimes these diseases were known as uh, miners' asthma, so a disease particularly associated with coal mining. 
The government set up commissions to investigate workplace accidents. One such was the 1842 Children's Employment Commission. Cavartha in in Merthyr Tidville, there's a a boy called Evan Gray who's described as losing two of his toes, which were cut off as he ascended the coal mine, as he was winched up from the bottom of the pit to to the pit head. There's a 10-year-old boy called Moses Gower who worked at a coal mine attached to Trafores Tin Works. He was a gate boy, so his job was to open and close gates that let in fresh air underground. And he had his foot crushed when it was run over by a coal truck. And then at a place called Hearwine in South Wales, uh, there was a boy called Giles Giles, who was 15, and it says that he lost his right arm by falling under the locomotive engine. So you get a real sense of these sort of vivid sort of accidents and which caused limb loss in, in, in some cases. And we find similar kind of stories being told in factories of children losing their fingers or having their bodies mangled by being caught up in machinery. In the matchmaking industry, for example, people got very ill because they were exposed to white phosphorus, which is one of the materials used making matches, which cause a condition called phosphorus necrosis, which is better known as fossy jaw, which caused really sort of striking disfigurements in match workers and led to the London match girls going on strike in 1888 to call for better safety in the workplace. I'm curious to know how people reacted to the increased prominence of people with disabilities. Well, I think, first of all, it's really important to note, really, that disability is really, really common in industrial Britain. So we we sometimes perhaps think about disabled people in the past as being shut away in institutions, as being kind of invisible in past societies. But that really wasn't the case. Visitors coming into industrial districts were often shocked by the numbers of people with missing limbs or artificial legs just um, walking down the street. So disability is, is, is a visible and normal part of life in industrial Britain. And disability also helps to make arguments for reform in working conditions. So the plight of disabled workers, particularly children, help to advance the campaign for factory reform in the 1830s and 40s. So we find disabled factory workers brought to testify before Parliament in 1832, and some of them even showed their their crooked limbs as, as examples of the poor conditions in which they worked. Disability is also important in recruiting people to the labour movement, so trade unions in the 19th and early 20th centuries spent a lot of their time fighting for better safety in the workplace and better support for injured workers. What's a really interesting feature of the Industrial Revolution is that these calls for change in the workplace, these calls for for better health and safety, give disabled people a platform to tell their stories. So, So the Industrial Revolution is really important, I think, in giving disabled people a voice, perhaps for the first time, in talking about their experiences. So these government inquiries in the 19th century are full of evidence given by disabled people when they're talking about their life stories and experiences. So to give you one example, there's a girl called Eliza Marshall who came from Leeds and she was 17 years old when she was sent down
down to London in the spring of 1832 to give evidence before a parliamentary select committee about work in the factories. It must have been a very daunting prospect for her to travel all that way down to, to London and speak in front of an audience of MPs. But she told this incredible story about her life growing up in Leeds, how she'd gone to work in a factory at a young age, but she believed this had caused her to become disabled. So she describes how over time her legs became very stiff and uh, crooked. She was in and out of the Leeds infirmary. She gets fitted up with a leg iron to try and straighten out her right knee. But she carries on working throughout all of this. She works as long as she possibly can, partly because her family aren't particularly supportive. So she has a stepfather who makes her go out to work because he refuses to support her. And she sort of describes her mother crying as she goes off to work, but she doesn't really have any choice. She says that she must go to work or else starve in the streets. Now, her story, I think, really reveals the hardship faced by young workers in the Industrial Revolution. But I suppose it also shows their resilience and the fact really that disabled people were expected to work and indeed themselves expected to work as long as they possibly can. But by the age of 17, Eliza just isn't able to carry on working in the factory. So, So it seems that by the time she gives evidence in 1832, she's now trying to earn a bit of a living by doing some needlework. In terms of support, there were a range of options available. There are lots of different kinds of support available. First and foremost, people were expected to be supported by their families. It was written into the law that families were meant to look after their own relatives if they possibly could. Now, in Eliza's case, um, you know, she talks about her stepfather being unwilling to do that. So, so, so this is a, a, is a bit of a problem. So, the other kinds of support outside of the family. Well, as a last resort, you could go to the poor law, and that that might provide some support for you to get some medical care or supplement your, your income if you weren't able to support yourself through your own work. But people were meant to or encouraged to take responsibility for their own welfare and medical care in the Industrial Revolution. So we find lots of things called friendly societies being established in this period. So workers were supposed to join these, to they paid part of their wages as subscription. And if they needed support during sickness, whether that's sort of financial support or medical support, then as long as they'd kept their subscriptions up, they were able to draw on that for some help. They weren't particularly geared up for people with long-term health conditions. So they might be okay if you're off work for a few weeks, but if you had something more disabling or a chronic condition which might affect you for a long time, then payments actually went down over time and many friendly societies stopped paying you after a year or so. There's also cases of private charity as well for people with disabilities to try and help them to get new occupations, for example, or to buy essential medical equipment. So 
a visitor to the Welsh town of Merthyr Tydfil in 1857, said that when he arrived in the town, he was asked to buy a raffle ticket to help raise money for an injured youth to, to help him buy a wooden leg. And we also have cases of people, people being supported by their communities, people raising money to help sort of buy equipment and give people a kind of a new start in life after disability. So again, there's an emphasis not on people being shut away in institutions, but giving them support to become economically independent going forward. When it comes to hearing impairment during this time, we know of famous names such as Beethoven who suffered with hearing loss during his life, but there's a bigger history to tell. In France, the abbot and educator Charles Michel de Lepi devoted his life to improving access to education and communication for the hearing impaired. So Charles Michel de Lepi was a French barrister and philanthropist. That's Dr. Japrit Verdi, medical historian and author of Hearing Happiness, Deafness Cures in History. And around 1730, 1740, he met two deaf children, two deaf girls actually, who needed a new educator. And he decided to sign on as their private tutor. So eventually, in 1760, he founded his own school for deaf youth in Paris in the decades long before the French Revolution. And his idea was that deaf children could learn to read and write much like any other hearing child. And what Delapi wanted to do was use the school to offer free education for any deaf child that needed one. And this was primarily because, for the most part, deaf education was a private enterprise, only accessible for wealthy children. So in this way, by offering the school for any deaf child who wanted it, Delapi wanted to prove his view that deaf children could actually grow up and live productive lives and become self-sufficient French citizens if they have education. So this was a remarkable idea at the time because he was arguing that we need to move away from these kinds of social images of dependency, charity and begging that was often accustomed in French society. Sign language had been used for centuries by the deaf community. The Lepi's development with sign language was essentially a form of communication. So how do you teach using the natural sign that these children had and give them a more kind of a systematic education? So he developed um, what's known as methodological signs which is a bridge between spoken and sign language. So in other words, he used the children's natural French signs and produced that in the syntax of of spoken French. So in other words, the way his process worked was that he would sign each letter of the French alphabet, usually through fingerspelling. So you tracing letters on a pupil's hand and then spell out the word completely or write it on letters on like a chalkboard. And in this way, these letters become printed words, and then the students, through a routine of memorization and repetition, start to associate the fingerspelling, so the sign, with the written word. So it's kind of a way of bridging language through manual signs with spoken language, in this case, French. So this routine of repetition and memorization 
made use of the natural sign that these deaf children already had, but transformed it to a manual version of spoken language that they could understand and therefore develop more complicated ideas. While sign language was being developed and spread, acoustic aids were being created too. The story of their development runs alongside that of the technological revolution. Until the late 19th century, and actually even some decades after that, most hearing aids were of the mechanical type. In other words, they were trumpets or oracles, simple sound conducting devices that were used to basically amplify noise. But around the early 19th century, some manufacturers based in England started developing more intricate versions of these trumpets. So they created acoustic aids that could be concealed. So a trumpet is small enough that you can hide it in a hat or for a woman to hide it in her bouffant hairstyle. Or even some large tabletop mechanical trumpets that could be concealed as a vase or as a fan or just an ordinary product. So hearing aids were again very mechanical. They operate on very simple process of sound conduction and amplification. Let's move on to modern hearing aids. Even though mechanical hearing aids, well, more accurately mechanical acoustic aids, were quite popular. I mean, they were basically used for a wide array of hearing loss. By the late 19th century, with all these experiments on carbon microphone and the telephone, adventurers started tinkering with this idea about sound transmission through electric wires. Now, the first electric hearing aid actually developed in 1892 by Fernand Alt Vienna, and he made use of an ordinary telephone receiver and converted it by connecting it to a carbon microphone and fastening it to a battery box. It wasn't a very big commercial success, primarily because the sound clarity wasn't clear, so it would make that crackling noise with the electric transference of sound. But five years later, in 1898, the American engineer Miller-Reese Hutchinson patented a new device that he named the Acuphone, which was a large tabletop hearing aid that again made use of familiar technology of the telephone, but connected to a battery. And from then on, during the 20th century, there will be more innovation and more modification to this simple electric idea, but devised to improve sound quality as well as reduce the size of electric hearing aids. So we went from large tabletop boxes to electric hearing aids that would be worn on the body and then eventually, by the late 20th century, worn behind the ear. In the next episode, we'll travel deeper into the innovations of the 19th century. With thanks to today's guests, Dr. Japreet Verdi, Dr. David Turner, Julie Mathias, Stephen McGann, and Dr. Deborah Brunton. This series was written, narrated, and produced by myself, Rebecca Radil. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry, and was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org.